Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. In a highly competitive media industry, the Washington Post aspires to be a powerful global voice illuminating issues of climate change and the environment. They've expanded their journalism and research on climate issues to include interactive maps, technology, and data-driven narratives. Deputy Climate and Environment Editor Juliet Eilprin says the news organization's investment in reporting on climate and the environment is partly rooted in research. This has revealed deep interest and concern about the planet from young people in the U.S. and around the world. So we have a vertical called Climate Solutions where we cover positive developments when it comes to not just tackling climate change, but other environmental problems. It gives people a sense of where things are going and where there are possibilities for progress. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Juliet Eilprin talks to Esri CMO Mariana Cantor about trends like the mobilization of the business community around climate concerns and how the Washington Post approaches its mission to provide the most comprehensive and illuminating coverage of this global imperative. Hello, Juliet, and welcome to the Esri and the Science Aware podcast. Hi there. So you've been covering environmental topics for decades. How did you start in this field and what did you recognize that needed to be addressed that potentially others missed? I actually entered environmental journalism in part because I got burnt out covering politics for quite a while. That's how I entered reporting initially out of college. I spent time studying politics. When I was lucky enough to both get a job first, I worked for a wire service in Washington then Roll Call newspaper. And when I was in my mid-20s, I was hired by the Washington Post. And I covered Congress and the presidency and found it a fascinating topic. But after some time uh, in the early 2000s, I became burnt out. I felt like I was covering a pretty similar storyline. There was a tremendous amount of partisanship. And while I had the ability to cover a number of topics, I didn't get to do it in great depth. And one of the great benefits of working for a place like the Washington Post is there are a ton of beats that you can do. And there happened to be an opening on the national desk for the National Environmental Reporter. And while I didn't have tremendous expertise in this area, I had covered a series of policy fights between the Republican leadership in Congress, and at that time, President Bill Clinton. And then after that, I had done some reporting on President George W. Bush and and his dealings with Congress on it. So I went to the national editor and we discussed whether I could switch jobs and I was able to plunge in. And I quickly discovered that this was an issue where you could combine really substantive science reporting and marry that to what's happening in terms of policy and politics. At the time in the Washington Post, I saw that it gave me a lens into what was happening both across the country and nationwide. And while it sounds odd to say this, I started covering the environment in 2004. I sat down with a then colleague, Michael Grunwald, the wonderful journalist, and he said, you know, you really need to pay attention to climate change. This is something that's really going to matter on your beat. And at the time, I said, sure, I'll look into that. But it was not something I was very familiar with. It was not a topic of everyday discussion. And so it was really through those kinds of initial conversations and then spending time in the field with scientists that I became particularly interested 
in how to chronicle what was happening in terms of climate change, as well as what was happening in the ocean. That was an area that I gravitated to because there was not that much coverage of it. And I felt it was a very significant area to explore. Well, clearly, this is now a very high profile beat that you're covering. And now you direct climate coverage for The Washington Post. So how do you approach this massive and complex topic with your teams? One of the things that we've done here at The Washington Post in terms of our expansion of the climate team is to figure out what are the different ways that we can give our audience a sense of what's happening and how can we do it in, in different and revelatory ways. So, for example, while we absolutely cover science and impacts and we cover policy and politics and we work with our colleagues who are based overseas, we're also looking at new forms of storytelling about climate and the environment. And so that manifests itself in a number of ways. We have expanded interactive pieces where you can look at how your risk of having a wildfire in your community might escalate. What it, will it mean in terms of flooding? How can we show what happened with the train derailment in Ohio in a different way or what happened to the tree canopy uh, in Sacramento known as the city of trees because of the deluge of atmospheric rivers that have been happening in California. So that's a really high priority for us. Then in addition, we're looking at kind of how you can communicate on these issues in really accessible ways. So for example, we launched the Climate Coat. Uh, Michael Korn is our reporter there who publishes a weekly column and then a twice weekly newsletter where he engages readers on really actionable and relevant topics, whether it is lentils and how they are really one of these superfoods that's both good for you and good for the planet. And so we're looking at that. Shannon Osaka writes analysis and pieces that engage in questions about what does one weigh when you look at the impact of having a child on the earth and how has that debate evolved in recent years or, you know, what are different ways? Why do we see that for Gen Z, they're not as interested in driving and what are the implications of that? So what we're really trying to do is expand our offerings so that we're engaging with people in an array of ways to really provide the most comprehensive and illuminating coverage when it comes to climate and the environment. I want to go to a book you wrote uh, about sharks called The Demon Fish Travels Through the Hidden World of Sharks. And in it, you conclude that sharks are a bellwether species, um, in a way, a key indicator of the future of the environment. What did you mean by that? So I became really interested in sharks for a few different reasons. Um, I'm actually not as much of a shark obsessive as many other people are, but I was interested in them because when I, as we go back to, you know, when I switched beats and started covering the environment, I started spending time with marine biologists because first of all, they're really fun to spend time with. You can go on expeditions with them. I could converse with them. And uh, again, it was an area that was undercovered. And so then when I started spending time with them, one of the things I realized is that people are terrified of sharks and really don't have that much investment for the most part in thinking that they should stick around. But they are incredibly important because they're the apex predators, the top predators in the ocean in many, in many environments. And so how they are faring give you a sense of what's happening 
along the entire food chain of the ocean, which also means the entire web of life in the ocean. And so sharks have been under tremendous pressure in terms of fishing on two fronts. One, because in many Asian countries, their fins are coveted for shark fin soup. And also because, frankly, they're caught by accidentally across the ocean as we're targeting other fish that have more, you know, have widespread commercial value. You can really look at what's happening with sharks and and understand where things stand in the ocean. And when you take out the top predators, it has ripple effects throughout the, the web of life in the ocean. You mentioned the role of science throughout this conversation so far as it relates to understanding and dealing with climate. Why is that important, first of all? How do you stay current on the science that's relevant? And how do you translate it and make it approachable and relatable to your audience? To start with, the reason why it's so important to integrate science and scientific findings into the coverage that we produce is because you really want to root your reporting in fact. And one of the benefits of, for example, peer-reviewed scientific papers, which is something we cover all the time, and I'll explain how that plays into our reporting, is because it has been subject to a much higher level of scrutiny than, say, a politician standing at a microphone issuing a statement. Uh, Sometimes politicians say things that are accurate. Sometimes they do not. And of course, it is part of the role of a journalist to fact check those findings. And the same thing does apply to when we're covering scientific research. But it helps that there is this step that often happens before a scientific conclusion reaches the the, uh, the broader audience, which is that there has been a back and forth behind the scenes as a journal article is being vetted and so forth. And so you really want to look at what both researchers are observing in the field and how they are interpreting what they're finding by having discussions with their colleagues about what has, you know, integrity in terms of data analysis and 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 so and interpretation. And so we really monitor closely some of the biggest scientific journals which are routinely publishing articles when it comes to whether it's in- industrial pollution and, you know, other factors and that's a great source of information. We have individual relationships with scientists that we've developed over time, where we're talking to, say, a researcher, but then we bounce those ideas off others. And that way, we can really provide informed and illuminating coverage that give people a sense of what's happening. And that's and that's critical if people are going to understand some of the planetary changes we're talking about. The Post is also approaching its own decisions that way. And I want to bring up this research that was done that covers three groups of constituents, if you will, business decision makers, policy makers, and consumers. And the research was about the importance of various topics to these groups. The fact that this research did not come back conclusively that every group wants to hear about climate, and yet the Post decided to invest quite a few resources and does a phenomenal job covering the environment and climate. So Walk us through that decision-making process. The research you're referring to, which was done by another group in the Post, certainly showed that among 
you know, say policy and business leaders, while there is interest in climate and the environment, you know, it might not rank as high as other topics. And we've also seen, you know, if you just look at public polling, one of the interesting things is while there's a broad consensus that these are important issues and there's a relative consensus that there needs to be greater action, for example, on behalf of the U.S. government to curb greenhouse gas emissions. When you look at overall surveys of Americans, there's not all there's not the same level of intensity on this issue, broadly speaking, compared to other issues. Now, what is interesting is when you look at younger Americans and younger people across the globe, there is a greater intensity on the question of climate change and the environment. And one of the things that the Washington Post has been looking at, of course, is how are we going to connect with the next generation of readers, both here and overseas? And there is tremendous interest uh, internationally, as well as among younger Americans in these questions of climate change and the environment. And what we've seen as we've done our expansion and published these stories, including, again, some of this more accessible and visual storytelling, is that we routinely have have one of our stories as one of the most read stories on the Washington Post website. So I think we've actually been able to prove in real time if you can produce coverage that is compelling, that's innovative, uh, that folks can connect to, it actually ranks as a pretty high priority when people are looking at what is a given story they want to be focusing on in the course of their day. Taking a look at the summary of the research, consumers believe that those in power, like policymakers and, and business decision makers, uh, can act to address climate change. But those leaders in policy and business don't necessarily feel empowered to to do that. Do you have any insight around that discrepancy? I would say the scale of the problem is so diffuse. Politicians often struggle to make what are often hard choices in the near term if they feel like they won't get the benefits long term. Now, the one exception to this is certainly supporting the deployment and development of, of clean energy. What we've seen is that you know supporting, for example, renewable energy and alternatives to fossil fuels can really resonate with both voters and politicians because that can, you know, create jobs in certain instances. And so, you know, there are there are ways in which politicians might have an incentive to act, but it's clear that there's not the same alignment of incentives with policy that you often see in other areas. There is um, a new book that's called Not Too Late, Changing the Climate Story from Despair to Possibility by Rebecca Solnit. And she did a recent op-ed piece in the Post, sort of has this optimistic and empowering narrative. What if climate change meant not doom, but abundance? What do you think of that perspective? I, I and I'm so glad you mentioned that in part because I, I will uh, admit that the one one part I did not mention that precedes our climate expansion, but is an incredibly important part of our our the way that we've changed the way we've covered climate in recent years is that we have a vertical called Climate Solutions, where we cover positive developments when it comes to not just tackling climate change, but other environmental problems. And we think that this is important for a few different fronts. 
One, there is an incredible mobilization that we're seeing in the private sector, as well as in, say, academia and the public sector to address greenhouse gas emissions and other environmental challenges that we have. And illuminating those stories is important for several fronts. One, it gives people a sense of where things are going. It highlights what potential challenges there are for making a shift to a, say, low carbon or carbon-free economy. And it provides people with a level of hope. And I think that that is important. And it's not Pollyannish to say that there are ways in which these problems are being solved. And while none of these things are comprehensive, they do have real world implications. And as someone who, for example, covers often pretty dark things on a regular basis, there is a virtue to also showing where there are possibilities for progress. Uh, I think that all of those stories also deserve to be told. And they are important as we kind of look at what are the paths forward, given where we are right now. So speaking of solutions, do you think there is an actionable understanding of how data and information technology can be part of the solution across various constituencies? Well, data is critical. And it's, again, it really is important in terms of informing our reporting. And I also think it's helpful for ordinary citizens to understand what's happening in the world and see it for themselves. And of course, again, Esri does a great job in visualizing this. And of course, we tap into that data to do our own visualizations. And that is, again, something we've noticed. Again, we've been working on that with uh, with our climate lab feature and especially this column that Harry Stevens is, is doing every other week where he is looking at how can you take data and use it to really understand more deeply what is happening. And I think when you look at what Esri is doing, because you have such a vast database to pull from, you are able to tell the story also in a visual way and allow folks to interact with that data. I mean, that is something that we found people really respond to. They will spend more time looking at a story if there's a way to personalize it and to play around with it and see how the information and the image shifts depending on you know what variables you put into it including location and i think that that's really important it, it is really making what is unseen visible and that is by definition a very empowering thing our audiences include many of the same audiences you have leaders from government business and nonprofits what is your message to them your genuine guidance to them on climate and environment there are plenty of things that are sobering when it comes to the state of the planet and where we're headed. But I constantly find joy in the natural world and in the revelations that our reporters bring back and share with us. And when I look at how, you know, when I think of some of the visualizations and the stories we've produced, whether it's compelling narratives that someone like Sarah Kaplan has done where she wrote about 
those who had, had suffered through the Paradise Fire have go out into the forest to reconnect and and heal. Or when, you know, again, I Sawana and I journeyed to find these towering trees in Southeast Alaska, or I look at, you know, how Harry Stevens does these revelatory and surprising analyses of what happens in, you know, when we have less cold and, and more heat going forward. I think that those are all ways that are really journeys of discovery that you can have that ultimately give you the capacity to go forward in, in, a, in, a, in a different way. Juliet, I enjoy very much your work and I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being a guest on our podcast. It's been a pleasure, Mariana. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. And thanks to Juliet Eilprin for explaining the value of cutting edge climate reporting. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.